Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. The U.S. dietary guidelines are updated every five years, and they were created more than 40 years ago as a way to help all Americans eat healthier based on current scientific data. But since its inception, a large and vulnerable group has been left out. Infants and toddlers under the age of two years. The lack of evidence-based guidelines for infant and toddler feeding practices in the United States is not because they're not necessary. Rather, quite the contrary appears to be true, based on data from the 2011 to 2012 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. This research shows a significant portion of children under the age of two years are at risk of childhood obesity. Specifically, it found 8.1% of children two years or younger were already above the 95th percentile, and 7.1% were at or above the 97.7th percentile for weight based on their length. As Health Eating Research published by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2017 points out, a fundamental component to addressing the risk of childhood obesity is to shape healthy early life diet and feeding behaviors, not just for infants and toddlers younger than 24 months, but also women leading up to and during pregnancy and nursing. With this in mind, a committee of experts for the first time are considering how to include dietary advice for the first 1,000 days of life in the upcoming 2020 U.S. Dietary Guidelines. The committee likely is already deeply reviewing research and comments submitted by experts, and it'll be a while yet until the recommendations are published. But that doesn't mean stakeholders are waiting quietly. Rather, many already are advocating and preparing for change. Among them is the nonprofit Partnership for a Healthier America, which is a leader in the fight against childhood obesity. The group hosted an invite-only roundtable discussion this week at its headquarters in Washington, D.C. to brainstorm ways that industry can tackle challenges with early palate development and help change the trajectory of this new generation of infants and children. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, attendees share their wish list of what they would like the 2020 dietary guidelines to address, as well as highlight some of what they're already doing to address the dietary development of mothers and children during the first 1,000 days. But before we dig in, I want to give everyone a quick heads up that Food Navigator USA also will be gathering stakeholders from across industry, academia, and government in Chicago this November to discuss some of these issues at our second annual Food for Kids Summit. The multi-day event allows attendees to take a deep dive into what children are and should be eating, as well as the market potential and regulatory landscape surrounding our country's youngest consumers. You can get all the details by visiting www.foodnavigatorusasummit.com or by clicking on the link in the story associated with this podcast. So getting back to the topic at hand, in greeting attendees at the roundtable on July 30th, PHA's president and CEO, Nancy Roman, explained why it's important that the private sector proactively engage in the creation of the 2020 Dietary Guidelines for children under two years and the potential impact for better that they can have on this issue. We were founded 10 years ago and 
really with the leadership and support of Michelle Obama and Republican Senator Bill Frist. And the idea was that, of course, government has a role to play in establishing policy and regulation. But that if we're really going to have the food culture that we want and tackle the issues of obesity, we will need fundamentally to engage the private sector and food companies very particularly. And so our mission at PHA is to really leverage the power of the private sector to bring systemic changes that improve food and increase physical activity. And as we look to the next 10 years, we've decided, gosh, we really want to be deliberate and intentional about the areas that we pay attention to. I'm really proud and pleased to say that um, food for infants and children is really right at the top of our list. We know how important those first three years are in terms of shaping personality, brain development, palate. Um, we're learning more every day about the extent to which life choices and habits ultimately ladder up to prevalence for obesity and the diet-related diseases associated with it. Um, diabetes, heart disease, and even cancers. So this really does matter. Well, the goal of the Dietary Guidelines for Children 0 to 2 is to improve the health of our youngest population. The stakeholders gathered at PHA's roundtable all agreed that the advice presented needs to address not just what infants and toddlers consume, but also what pregnant and nursing mothers consume. Ashley Koff, a nationally recognized registered dietitian and the founder of the Better Nutrition Program, explained that she would like to see in the 2020 Dietary Guidelines an outline not just of what nursing and pregnant women should avoid, but also what they should eat to improve their health and that of their children. Yeah, we, we you know, in prenatal nutrition, we've developed, we collectively, like me and Culpa, um, but we've developed a list of all these things you've got to avoid. And any doctor can read them off, any nurse, any dietitian, any mom, and we are not going in like, you absolutely have to get these nutrients in. What we say to them is, say to them, those mothers, um, we say to us to uh, that, you know, you take a prenatal, that's your foundation, and then um, do your best with all these other things. Well, what if we flip that conversation and said, you know, we come to find out, you know, coffee, eh, not so bad, maybe some caffeine, depending on what people think, you know, maybe even a little bit of chocolate, but you know what, it's absolutely critical that you get in a rainbow. And if you can't get in a rainbow from food, um, first of all, we have to teach them about frozen, we have to teach them about, you know, how are these opportunities developed. But if you can't get in that rainbow, that's where that prenatal is going to come in and help support you. And oh, by the way, we should also look at prenatals that are designed a little bit more like a rainbow too, right? Instead of just looking at something that reads more like, you know, a back of a panel of a, um, a total, an old total cereal box, you know, that kind of thing. So I think we should make it pretty simple around that part. I think the rainbow is probably the easiest way for us to communicate. Um, and then you just remind them it's a rainbow, not from Skittles or Starbucks. Rick Klauser, the CEO of Sprout Foods, agreed that encouraging pregnant and nursing women to eat a wide range of healthy foods is important, but not just for the immediate health of their children, but also the long-term development of their taste preferences and dietary habits. In this country, you know, when, when um, fortunately breastfeeding rates are really double-digit growing, now 60-plus percent of moms are either full-time or experimenting with breastfeeding, it's up significantly versus formula-only feeding. And so as, as you start to see um, with breastfeeding, you can also pass through 
a lot of flavor profiles um, through breast milk. So children that are exposed to breast milk early in life are more likely to um, uh, try and reject and then eventually accept vegetables, savory vegetables, up until the age of 26, uh, 24, 36 months versus formula only lead weaning ends up being um, uh, a much shorter window of time for which children will test and learn with new kinds of vegetables. So, so we know all that and it's so important um, that we work on regulation that explains to moms that um, it's important to have balanced nutrition under the age of one. Another important element of educating pregnant and nursing women about their diet that Ashley says she'd like to see in the 2020 Dietary Guidelines is the risk nutrient deficiencies posed to both mothers and children. You probably the only other thing, and we would then put this on the personal responsibility and on the practitioner responsibility, is to identify if there are any nutrient deficits in mom earlier on, and can we replenish those? Can she have a focal point for replenishing those nutrients during her pregnancy? That's actually going to be just better for her from a longevity standpoint. Um, we do a lot of work uh, in uh, with the women that I work with uh, in especially for second, third, fourth onwards moms, um, and that includes if you haven't had the given birth to the child because your nutrients are lost to that child, and so you might have 20 years of develop nutrient development and stores in your body, or 25 when you have your first child, but then between. 25 and 27, how much recovery of your, of your nutrient source have you done uh, in order to, not again, the health of the baby is going to be most likely okay based on your intake, but how's your health going to come out of that? Building on this and in the spirit of crafting memorable messages that are easy for Americans to follow, Carol Dribbles, a U.S. policy and research analyst at 1000 Days, recommended a slight tweak to the old adage of pregnant and nursing women eating for two. In terms of simple messages, something that we've been encouraging the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee and the agencies to think about is, you know, we've all heard this message of you're eating for two. Well, what if we can shift that to instead of eating twice as much, eat twice as healthy? Mm-hmm. So things like that, because uh, as we know, during pregnancy and then in lactation, if a child is exclusively breastfeeding, all of their nutrition is coming from those stores and from... A big proponent of simple, clear communications like the message Carol suggested, PHA's Nancy said that the boiled-down message that she would like to see in the 2020 Dietary Guidelines is less sugar, more vegetables. We need to expose children to more opportunity younger for, for vegetables, and a simple guidance for that is foods of different colors. And... I think we don't want insidious sugar in everything, and that message has to be carefully worded because I think young children can and should eat fruit. How much fruit a child or pregnant or nursing woman should eat, though, can be a bit of a flashpoint based on the conversation at the event. Ashley agreed and emphasized that while sweet fruit can have high levels of natural sugar, it also shouldn't be penalized. You know, when you're talking about prenatal, it's, I've never had an obese patient, I've never had an unhealthy patient where I can point to their fruit consumption as the issue. It's the, if you add fruit on top of all of the other sugar yeah. consumption or if you have existing conditions. But I think penalizing fruit is going to be, in throughout any part of the lifespan, is just a massive mistake. While that may be, Rick pointed out that the recommendations should clarify the concentration of sugar from fruit in packaged products. 
Otherwise, manufacturers could exploit a loophole that allows them for, to portray overly sweetened products as still healthy. That's where the, the miscommunication really comes from, because manufacturers are smart enough to head down a healthful path and add fruit juice instead of sugar per se, and that is a claim they could make, you know, sweetened with real fruit, and that's what 2020 regs will change. If there's concentrates that are not diluted down to natural bricks level of a fruit, that's added sugar. If right. there's concentrates in a product, that's added sugar. It's a baby step, but it's going to come. And I think in this space, yeah. it needs to be much more aggressive. Along this same vein, Rick said that he would like the 2020 dietary guidelines to clarify front of pack labeling so that it better communicates the amount of fruits and vegetables in a serving. He explained that currently some manufacturers may mislead parents by calling out vegetables on the front of pack, but that the amount of those veggies often is far less than a fruit, as illustrated in the ingredient list on the back of the pack. I would love to see government intervene and um, require companies to put the order of ingredients that's inside the package on back, which they, uh, government and law rec- recognizes that Consumers understand that the order of ingredients on the back is what's inside, but it doesn't match the fanciful copy on the front. And I think because of that, um, consumers might think they're feeding their their babies kale and broccoli, but it's really apple, pear, and banana. And today in market, if you were to um, force this change through tomorrow and say every pouch on the shelf has to match the order of ingredients inside, 65% of the products Rick pointed out with pride that Sprout Organic Foods always lists in order of concentration on the front and back of the pack the fruits and vegetables in its products. He also noted the company has a commitment to PHA to add more veggies to its baby food to help prevent obesity later in life. If, if you're focused more on eating vegetables, you're obviously eating less sugar. And so with vegetable eating, platform like we have and our commitment to PHA that more than 50% of our items will be vegetable leading by next year. We're three shy right now, it's 46%. Uh, but by early next year, we'll be 50% vegetable leading. Um, and we really believe that we need to stand up and make sure consumers understand that they can just read the front panel. They're not out there reading this fine tooth combing back panel and, and they're counting on manufacturers doing the right thing for them. And, and I think government could help to influence because leaving that door open, uh, it's pretty clear apple pears and bananas are relatively inexpensive fruit ingredients and processing those um, is a lot cheaper than dealing with low acid vegetables. Uh, and so there's there's a P&L involved. And I think it's time then government needs to step in and make sure that we all understand what we need to feed our babies because it is the biggest natural resource we have to protect this country. While much of the conversation focused on what stakeholders want to see in the recommendations, Ashley said there was one thing she did not want to see, and that was an overemphasis on nutrients rather than whole food-based diets. I have a lot of concern about the nutrient uh, approach to nutrition as opposed to the nourishment. So what I love about the vegetable forward is um, there are so many different benefits of a vegetable. You know, the the antioxidants, the minerals, the vitamins, um, how these things all come together. 
And uh, unfortunately, the majority of the research that we have in this early time period is very nutrient specific. So companies want to identify and research and study DHA. Um, they're not looking at you know, wild salmon or hemp seeds that provide you know, a variety of omegas for growth. Um, when we're looking at dietary guidelines, how in that, especially in this uh, thousand days, how can we look at it as not just identifying specific nutrients? I know we talk about vitamin A, we know those are important, but if we allow for nutrient, then we allow a term nutrient density to be ascribed to a product that has a bunch of isolated nutrients mm -hmm. that don't right. bind together and come together and nourish. So I think we have some challenges in that discussion that um, I'm eager to follow or to present yes. <laughs> to see what other people think. <laughs> Other areas of concerns that stakeholders at the roundtable said they'd like to see in the dietary guidelines include the impact of soil health on foods children eat. In particular, some voiced concerns about heavy metals and contaminants. On related notes, some participants said that they wanted to see more focus on how agriculture subsidies impact the foods that are readily available to children or can be provided at a lower price point, but also a lower nutritional value. As wide-ranging as the discussion was, it only scratched the surface of the issues that the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee likely will wade through as they craft the recommendations. To learn more about these additional issues as well as the committee's progress, visit www.dietaryguidelines.gov for more information. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.